0: I know that there are no doubt many questions about some of the things that we've discussed in our Defending Your Faith series that we have been endeavoring to give on Sunday evenings. And there might be some questions as a result of this morning as well. And I want to remind you that if you have a question that is not necessarily related to what we have been talking about on Sunday evenings or what we may have discussed this morning you are free to ask that question as well. And uh, I've already talked with a few of you who want to be able to ask some questions, and so let's have some fun time talking about God's Word, and let's ask some questions and see if we can come up with some answers for those. So, who wants to start out? And what I'll do is I'll try my best to repeat the question uh, for the tape, and we'll be able to allow all of this to be tape-recorded. All right? Who has a question tonight? Good question about a brother who has been reading the Bible and has been discovering what appear to him to be inconsistencies. Uh, Say, for instance, in the gospel accounts, uh, one gospel account speaks of one angel at the tomb after Christ's resurrection. Another gospel account speaks of two angels. Uh, Is that a clear contradiction? How can that be harmonized? And when he comes up with other particular questions about Scripture, is there a resource for which I might be able to uh, read and avail myself of so that I might answer those questions or maybe even give someone like that? Well, one of the things that is very, very good to hear is that someone is at least asking those questions, right? And we all have people that we know of, and they may even be relatives, where we are challenged To answer their questions, and sometimes they have very, very good questions. I remember well some questions that uh, my own mother had when we had times of uh, interaction uh, before she came to Christ, and I'm, of course, always invigorated by that because I love to dialogue on these things, and I'm always involved in answering questions like that, and so I'm always looking for resources that I believe will be helpful in this regard, and so let me before I forget, give you some resources that will allow you to not only study on your own, but you might be able to give these resources to these folks who see these apparent contradictions in Scripture. There is an older work by a man whose last name is Haley, H-A-L-E-Y, and it's called uh, Haley's Bible Difficulties. And that is an older work which speaks of some of the apparent contradictions that appear in the Bible that really, once you begin to study and you begin to investigate these things, you're going to find out that some of these apparent contradictions, in fact many of them, have legitimate answers to them. And not answers just for the sake of trying to come up with an answer, but a really good, solid answer that a lot of times people have never really considered. And so that's a good resource. The one that is the most helpful to me, however, is a resource called the Encyclopedia of Bible Difficulties by Gleason Archer, the Encyclopedia of Bible Difficulties, and goes all the way through to Revelation. and many of the questions that people ask are posed by him in a question format than with his answer. And because he is an Old Testament scholar, he knows many, many languages. He's able to answer a, a lot of very, very questions. Now, for instance, one of the questions people often ask uh, regarding the early days of the Book of Genesis—a very common question—that is, where did Cain receive his wife? Right? You've heard that often, and I think the most legitimate answer to that is that Cain married his sister. That was early enough in the human reproductive stream that there was there would not be as much of a difficulty then, of course, as we would have now with genetic disabilities, genetic dysfunctions, genetic mutations. And so Cain had to marry his sister in order for the race to continue to be propagated. And he goes through and he answers that question and the reasons why, and he goes all the way through the entire Bible with a number of questions that he answers. It's a very thick book, but I think it's a very helpful resource. Let me also mention that often when people are struggling with answers to these kinds of questions, it's sometimes not simply because they're troubled by apparent contradictions, but they're trying to point out contradictions in God's Word that sometimes gives gives them a level of justification to live the way they're living. And that's a very, very difficult thing for us because... We know that that is the case. We know that the Bible says in John chapter 3 that men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are what? Evil. We know that ultimately everyone's apparent question about Scripture is at the heart a desire not to obey the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And when we pray for people like that, what we need to do is pray that God, and only God can do this, would open their blind eyes so that they can see that no matter what appears as a contradiction in Scripture is ultimately an issue of obedience to the Lordship of Christ. And since we believe so strongly here at the Bible Church that only God can grant a new heart to an individual, what we need to be doing in addition to answering their questions or at least attempting to, is also praying at the same time that God Himself would reveal, through His Word, His person and His work, to those individuals so that they could come to a place of acknowledging the Lordship of Christ and really submit their will to His will. The great thing, of course, is that if they're willing to dialogue with, with you on these matters, then that may also mean that they're reading the Scripture and ultimately we know that the Bible says in the book of Romans that faith comes by hearing and hearing a speech about Christ. And that's a great thing. I remember for many, many years talking with my mother about some of these things and what a joy it was in my own heart when she first called me on the phone that I could still remember the conversation. She said, you know, I'm thinking about buying the kind of Bible that you preach from. What kind of Bible is it? And could you answer some of my questions? And now we had dialogued before, but I could tell that God at least appeared to be drawing her to himself. And the questions that she had at that point, from that point on, were much different in terms of her attitude toward God and his word than from before. And so we just need to pray diligently for them and to answer their questions as best we can. And it's not wrong, certainly not wrong, to say at some point, that's a very good question. That appears as though it's a paradox, it's a contradiction, sometimes called an antinomy, a tension. I don't know the answer to that question, and I'm not sure that I've been aware or read of a good answer to that question. I'll try to do the best I can, but ultimately if I can't, it still doesn't change the fact that God is who He is, that He sent His Son to die on the cross, that we are commanded to repent of our sins and believe in Christ, and that is the real issue. And you know, often when we talk with people like that, if we are, are able and have the freedom, now sometimes we don't have that freedom, but if we have the freedom to speak to them about their life, what we could do is transition from the contradictions that they say might be in the Bible to the obvious contradictions that we see in their life. And there's usually not a good answer for those kinds of questions. And if they're they're going to allow us to point out some of those things it might bring us to a level of discussion where they really live. And maybe they'd be open to talking with you about those things. Okay, good question. Yes, another question. Question about the issue of visions and signs and uh, other extra-biblical revelation after the canon of Scripture has closed. How do we deal with that? How do we respond to that? Well, that's a very good question. We know that in the sweep of biblical history there were numbers of times and seasons in which it was very apparent that signs and wonders and God revealing Himself to mankind was very, very obviously the way God was dealing with man. In fact, often you'll hear this. You'll hear people talk about three periods within the flow of biblical history in which these signs and wonders were most prominent. The first is usually the time where we see Moses and Aaron and that time frame where we know, of course, about uh, the Ten Commandments. Uh, We just uh, saw that film the other night again on television where there were all these incredible signs and wonders occurring in our world. And that was a major time in which God was speaking directly to a man, namely Moses. And then there was a time with Elijah and Elisha when there was again a great overflow of signs and wonders and God again speaking directly to people His will and purpose for them. And then that third time frame that we see most prominent in Scripture was the time of Jesus and the apostles, in which you cannot ignore the fact that again, major signs and major wonders were being accomplished through Jesus and the apostles. In fact, in the book of 2 Corinthians, in chapter 12, it even uses a specific phrase to earmark that time when it talks about the apostles, and it says that they were doing the signs of an apostle. A very specific phrase that has reference to a time frame in which the apostles were known for the signs and wonders that they were doing. In fact, you remember the story in the book of Acts where uh, a lame man came to, to Peter. In fact, he was was unable to even walk, and Peter comes walking by him, and he asks for Peter to heal him, and even the, the shadow of Peter's presence healed the man. Now, that's incredible. And that's not something that we often see in our world. In fact, to be very honest with you, I've never personally witnessed something like that. Now, I know that there are numbers of people who say, that they've heard about someone who heard about something who saw what they believed was a bona fide sign or wonder or that God spoke directly to a person. I've never personally seen that. And my response is that if someone said that I had a first-hand account where God spoke audibly to me, I would have difficulty affirming that because of what I see in Scripture. One of the places that we can go to is Jude. I read it this morning, and it bears repeating again, in the book of Jude, that little epistle right before the book of Revelation, Jude speaks to this, and we've been going through it a little bit in our Sunday night series, Defending Your Faith, in verse 3, there's only one chapter of Jude, so we don't refer to it as a chapter, but we refer to it as Jude 3. And Jude says, Beloved, while I was making every effort to write you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write you, appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. It's a very interesting way that Jude brings up the content of our faith. He calls it here a contending earnestly for the faith. And that little article there that is before faith, the word the, is very important because it talks to us in this verse about the content, the, the biblical framework that has been handed down to the saints. It's not talking about a, a subjective faith that an individual has in Christ. Usually that is referenced by simply talking about faith in Christ. And when it's talking about the faith, it's talking about an objective reality that is the Scripture. And this verse teaches us that we are to see the faith the content of revealed truth as having been once for all handed down to the saints now for me this particular verse and several others mean that once we have a completed canon the word canon is the is the word for rule or standard and when we talk about the canon of scripture what we mean by that is that all of the things that God has revealed to us in His Word has now been completed. With the closing of the book of Revelation, after the beginning of the words that are given to us in Genesis, the canon, the standard, the rule has now ended and we have in the 66 books of the Bible, 39 of the old, 27 of the new, the completed revelation of God. That means practically this. God has spoken, and He has spoken to us through His Word. In fact, even the writer to Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 1, He has spoken to us beforehand in the prophets, and in these latter days He's spoken to us in His Son. That is the New Testament. We have the revelation of Jesus Christ... revelation to man, his direction for man, and we have the New Testament witness, the witness of Christ, who speaks to us through his word so that we have the completed revelation of God. If someone were to say to me today, I believe that God has given me new revelation, my theology suggests that that wasn't the true God and that that revelation is not directly from God. Now normally when people say that, especially those of the evangelical sort, they are not referring to God audibly speaking to me. Often what they mean by that is that God has led me to do something or I believe God wants me to do something or maybe even sometimes they're really talking about what they've read in the Scripture and what God has brought to their mind. Well, that's a big difference. That's the difference between what the Bible uses as the term revelation, that's God directly coming to us, or the revelation of His Word, and the doctrine of illumination. Illumination means that God brings to my mind what I have already known about the Scripture. And so if I were to say to someone, well, I believe that God has brought to my mind this truth that I'm sharing with you. Well, that would be acceptable as a way of speaking, because that's a proof of the doctrine of illumination, that God is given me an illumined mind to understand truth that He wants me to know in order for me to have direction for my life. If God were to directly and audibly speak to me, I would, first of all, have a dilemma, because how would I know that it was truly from God? How would I really know that? as opposed to wondering if there was some other voice out there that was really giving me information, or that it was my own mind itself thinking about things and assuming that it was God speaking directly to me. So we have to be very, very careful. I believe the answer to your question, Jill, is that the specific issue of signs and wonders and God speaking to people has ended with the close of this canon, this book. Now, someone will immediately say, but wait a minute. Doesn't the end of this book, i.e., the end of Revelation, say that there will be two witnesses, unnamed witnesses? Some believe it's Moses and Elijah. Some uh, speculate on some others. Isn't it true that it says that in the final days, there'll be two witnesses who will witness the truth of Christ, and that will come in the latter days, and that will be directly from God? It'll be the appearance. Of, of two witnesses, probably either angelic beings or glorified saints. Yes, that is true. In the end, we will have some of those things that will revisit us. But that doesn't necessarily mean that this book isn't our final and complete revelation. It is. This book tells us that that will come in the end. And in fact, I believe that if it does, Occur, that if it does occur exactly as it says, as I believe it will, then that doesn't diminish my belief that this is my standard. This is the only thing that I go to. In fact, in Deuteronomy twenty-nine, twenty-nine, it says, "...the secret things belong to the Lord, but the things revealed to us and our sons are for us." And that means that everything that I need in life, God has given me in this book. And that everything that I don't need has not been revealed to me and therefore I don't need to know it. That's probably the Old Testament equivalent to the Second Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4 that says everything that pertains to life and godliness is through the true knowledge of Him and the only place we receive that true knowledge is in this book. So I would tend to reject the signs and wonders argument, the, the extra-biblical revelation, because there are too many passages that speak against it in my judgment. Okay? All right. Question about spiritual gifts. I believe you can legitimately categorize the four places where spiritual gifts are talked about in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, Ephesians 4, and 1 Peter 4. You can easily remember that because it's 12, 12, 4, and 4. Okay? In the four places where spiritual gifts are being referred to, I believe that you could categorize those lists which are generic lists. They aren't specific. They are categories of giftedness. I believe that you could, in an analysis of the New Testament, break those four places down into two major areas of gifts. I would break them down into what I call the temporary sign gifts and the permanent edifying gifts. The temporary sign gifts would be the spiritual gifts that are listed in Romans 12, or 1 Corinthians 12, like this. Tongues, which I believe is a word that simply means languages. And I believe that tongues are known languages. I don't believe that's a, that it is an aesthetic gibberish that is unintelligible to human beings that somehow is a way that believers communicate with God back and forth. I believe that's a known entity, a known language. Tongues, the interpretation of tongues, Miracles, and what else? Healing. So you basically have those four categories. Healing, tongues, interpretation of tongues, and what? What did I mention? Okay. Prophecy, or uh, you might be able to put prophecy in a, in a, in a different category because I believe that prophecy as we understand it now, is differentiated in some ways with the prophecy of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament. I believe that the term prophecy now has taken on a meaning in the stages of the epistles of the New Testament as a speaking forth, almost like preaching. It's almost the same idea as someone who is a herald of the Gospel. And so I believe that those temporary sign gifts are in a category all of their own, And I believe, Robert, that that category of giftedness has now been done away. Not because we have chosen to do away with them, but because they served their purpose. I believe that there were purposes for those things. I believe, for instance, that one of the purposes was the canon of Scripture had not yet been closed. And so when God was continuing to reveal Himself and for the purpose of the beginning of the church, the temporary sign gifts were very, very important and very crucial and necessary. But once the canon of Scripture is closed, there is not a need in my judgment for those temporary sign gifts to occur. Now, I know that when I say temporary sign gifts, I'm attaching uh, a term to those that, aren't, that isn't listed in Scripture, and it may predispose me to believing what I'm saying, but at least I believe that that's a category of giftedness that was for the purpose of the beginning of the church, it was a purpose for the idea of an, a sign for unbelief for the Jews, that God was speaking to them as Jesus did in parables, so that hearing they would not hear, that understanding they would not understand, because it was a sign of judgment to them. And then there's a second major category, and that is what I call the permanent edifying gifts, and those would be the, the idea of faith, encouragement or exhortation, Teaching, preaching, giving, evangelism, those lists again in those passages that I mentioned. And I believe that those are permanent because they are the continuing gifts that would edify believers based upon the instruction of the completed canon. I tell you, one thing that you could do is you would very profitably be able to have a handle on these things if you were to listen to three tapes that Pastor Tim Sin did that are audio taped from our Doctrine and Devotion time. And if you would ask our office uh, to uh, allow you to secure those tapes, Tim did a great, great job in the issues of spiritual gifts and especially the issue of prophecy. And I thought he did a very wonderful job in that. If you want to learn more, three tapes are available for you to listen to. Okay? All right. Another question. series that we've had um, exploring the various cults seems like there's a pattern every, every one of them may have a little bit of biblical truth but then they go far afield with all this other um, extra biblical information. My question would be when you have a, a church or an organization that is uh, like a cult but yet seems to have the doctrine? That's a good question. Keith is asking, when you have what appears to be right doctrine, and yet you might teach particular people cult-like activity, how do you discern those things? And I was obviously saying that the two earmarks of a false teacher are wrong theology, errant theology, and an immoral lifestyle well he's now asking the question what if someone appears to have a right theology but may not have the life that backs that up does that mean then automatically that because they have one but not both that it's still a category of false teaching well I believe that you can't always say that unless you can clearly discern that both elements are there in other words if both things, errant theology and an immoral lifestyle, are not there, then it's a little bit more difficult to determine whether or not that is really a false teacher. I'll give you an example. There are groups around the country that I would say have basically, fundamentally, a right look at Scripture in the main. They have an orthodox view of Christ. They have an orthodox view of the Bible, Uh, they have a right view of salvation, but it appears in the practice of their local fellowship uh, an authoritarianism, and that is true. There are are numbers of groups like that. It it really doesn't uh, help you at all for me to begin to list some of those groups, because again, this morning's message and the Defending Your Faith series, I'm talking more about the cults but it would be helpful for us to talk a little bit about some of these groups and why they do what they do. Well, there are some groups that appear to have a right theology but an authoritarianism about them. Why is that the case? Well, I believe that sometimes even when a group has a right theology, they can have a very wrong methodology in carrying that theology out. For instance, you could have a group that has a very orthodox view of salvation and a very orthodox Christ, but the way that they attempt to shepherd their people is a way that I believe goes beyond what Scripture talks about when it talks about shepherding people. For instance, I know a group of churches that when they attempt to shepherd individuals within that congregation... They go so far, in my judgment, in the direction of what I might call hyper shepherding, in which they determine when people can take their vacation, uh, when they can choose to uh, fellowship with other believers. Uh, if they are not involved in Sunday worship every single Sunday without fail, then they'll receive a call from someone as though there's a question mark about their spiritual life and their maturity because they missed a particular Sunday of worship. And that is a group that may have right doctrine, but their methodology is suspect. In fact, I believe that that would be a hyper-shepherding. I believe it to be unnecessary to do that in people's lives because there's no warrant in God's Word to do that. And that is a group that may have right doctrine, but their methodology is suspect. In fact, I believe that that would be a hyper-shepherding. I believe it to be unnecessary to do that in people's lives because there's no warrant in God's Word to do that. Now, of course, they would say, but there is warrant because we're called upon to shepherd the flock of God. The question, however, is what kind of latitude do we have as shepherds to carry out that divine command. I agree that it says shepherd the flock of God among you. The question though is, is there latitude in that shepherding process? For instance, here at the Bible Church, in order to try to make sure that everyone is shepherded, all of our elders have been given a list of people so that they can call upon those people, see about their needs, minister to them, and sometimes you might not have had a call from that person maybe in a long time, but that's okay because it's not as though we think that either you're doing so well that you don't need a call or you'll be receiving a call shortly because there's an assumption that maybe something is going on. There are times and seasons for which you might receive a call very proactively with no agenda whatsoever. How are you doing? How are things going? How can I help you? Sometimes people call in or we call and in the process of conversation we find out that there are issues for which there needs to be biblical counsel or exhortation. But there's freedom there because the Scripture doesn't give details down to the nth degree about how a person should be shepherded. And if a local church were to come along and say, well, we believe that in our shepherding methodology we're going to call everybody in the church who doesn't show up every single Sunday because we assume that if they don't, something might be going on that's not good. Well, I'm not sure that that's the best methodology, and I wouldn't have Scripture texts that would substantiate that. But often that is the case. Churches will do that. It's also true, Keith, that sometimes a person who might be preaching a right doctrine is living an immoral life while he is teaching at the same time. Now, there's where the the rub comes. Is that person a true shepherd of God? Well, only God knows the heart. And ultimately, if that person were to go into the presence of the Lord for either affirmation or condemnation, only the Lord knows that ultimately. There are times where we might question it. We might have heard of a pattern of immorality in the life of a, of a shepherd? And that's when we have what I would believe uh, would be legitimate questions. I'll tell you the way the Apostle Paul dealt with it. Turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 13. This is exactly the way the Apostle Paul dealt with it. In 2 Corinthians chapter 13, this is what he said. And, and you know, of course, that in the church in Corinth, There were a lot of things that were going on there that would distress the heart of a shepherd from the side of the congregation. Notice what Paul says in verse 1. This is the third time I am coming to you. Every fact is to be confirmed by the testimony of two or three witnesses. In other words, if someone's bringing up a charge against another believer, then Paul is saying the way to deal with that is to make sure that if someone is charged, that the facts of the matter be adjudicated on the basis of the confirmation of the testimony of two or three witnesses. And that goes all the way back to the book of Deuteronomy as a process for which facts can be ascertained. You would know that this is the very foundation of our judicial system. This is the way it's supposed to be set up, that witnesses determine the facts of a matter by their first-hand observance And then there's an adjudication about their testimony. He says, I have previously, verse 2, said, When present, the second time, and though now absent, I say in advance, as those who have sinned in the past, and to all the rest as well, that if I come again, I will not spare anyone, since you are seeking for proof of the Christ who speaks in me and who is not weak toward you, but mighty in you. In other words, this particular book, 2 Corinthians, is where Paul's apostolic authority is being very much questioned. His authority is at the heart of much of what is written in 2 Corinthians. Because there was a band of people in the church in Corinth, apparently, who at every turn was continually questioning Paul and his ministry. They would say things like, well, Paul's in it for money. Or Paul's in it for sexual favors. Or Paul is in it because of his own pride and self-aggrandizement. And so constantly Paul was under the attack of these leaders, probably in my judgment they were actually leaders within the church and not just non-leaders who were members in the fellowship. I believe that some of these were leaders. They were false teachers, false prophets. But they had the appearance, because of this preaching of right doctrine, that everything on a public level, including their teaching, was sound. But they clearly had motives that were to be questioned. Here's what Paul says. Verse 5. Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you fail the test? But I trust that you will realize that we ourselves do not fail the test. You see what he's doing? He's saying, look, it is going to be true. In every church... And in every situation, there are going to be some who are going to be a part of the true, and there are going to be some who are going to be a part of the false. But you're not always going to be able to tell it just by what they say. Sometimes you're going to have to work hard to see if what they say is being backed up by how they live. And Paul says, especially with regard, I believe, to the teachers, the leaders in this church, examine yourselves, test yourselves Prove yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Or do you not know that Jesus Christ lives in you unless you are discredited? And it's interesting, that word discredited there is the word adakimos. The word would would mean that, say for instance, a person who would work with precious metals would take these precious metals and would put them in the furnace, the fire. And the fire would produce the dross that would be falling from the true metal. Of course, there would be that which would be built up around the metal that would be true, and a a furnace would be built, and an artisan would take that precious metal, and he would place it into the fire, and because of the heat, the dross, the the non-true part of a precious metal, would fall away, and the trueness of that metal would be seen in that which remained. That's the Greek word dokimas. When you put the alpha privative on the front of it, like atheist, atheist, someone who does not believe in God, adakimas means someone who was tested, placed in the furnace, and found to be unworthy or discredited. That's the very word that he's using there. Someone who is to be examined and who when in the final analysis they were put into the furnace of testing or trial, they were proven to be unworthy. They were proven to be discredited. And I believe that ultimately, even if we can't know that here on earth, and sometimes because of our human inability to see inside a heart and see where a person is coming from, we might not be able to make that call. But God himself will ultimately make that call, and he will find out everybody who has been examined by his own divine work, his own divine furnace, and there will be some who will be found to have been worthy who have been falsely accused, like Paul here, and there will be others who would be, after testing, would be found to be unworthy. Now, sometimes we can know that, and sometimes we can't. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Timothy 5 this, Some men and their sins follow closely after them, and some more farther behind. What does he mean by that? What he means by that is this, there are some people whose sins are very evident And they follow them very closely. And you can tell about them. You can tell that they're not real and that they will have immediate consequences to their sin. But then there are others for which their sin does not immediately follow after and the consequences are not so immediate and so it's not easy to tell, to discern. And obviously, since we're not God, we must let God go through all of the sifting process and determine the reality of someone who has a right doctrine but you question their methodology. And, of course, it's true that you find out sometimes that someone has a right theology or so it appears, but they do have an immoral life and they are found out in some way. And Paul says in 1 Timothy 5, here's the way to deal with it. Do not receive an accusation against an elder, which is the equivalent of a teacher, unless on the basis of two or three witnesses, that two or three witnesses is there there again. And then he says, if the person continues in sin... That means that they were found out to have been truly sinning and unrepentant. He says, rebuke in the presence of all, so that all may fear sinning. And so that's the process. Sometimes that can occur. You can see the sin. You deal with it. If there's repentance, if there's brokenness, if there's contrition, then that person might very well have been proven to have been true but fell into sin. Their sin was found out. They were dealt with. They responded. Sometimes people are in sin They refuse to acknowledge it. They are found out. And it's not always because of their theology. It may be because of their lifestyle. They're found out about that. They do not repent, and therefore they're to be rebuked in the presence of all. So that all may see the seriousness of the sin of a teacher's life, a false teacher. And so it's difficult sometimes to say, but maybe those are some guidelines that help. All right, maybe one more question, then we'll end. Mark's asking the question about the priority of worship and whether or not we can legitimately say, well, I worship God in my home, or I worship God apart from other believers, or I have my own personal relationship with God. And you'll often hear sometimes people say, God and I have an agreement. Right? They say, God and I agree that, you know, I worship the stars, or I worship creation by going fishing or camping or whatever. I've even discovered people who've said, uh, I was baptized and my friend did it and it was at a retreat setting and it was just the two of us. Well, the Scripture has a lot to say about spiritual authority, it has a lot to say about spiritual leadership, and it has a lot to say about worship. And every time worship is being spoken of, it's in the context of a worship experience that occurs with other believers. It's amazing. In fact, turn to your, in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10, and we'll close with this. Hebrews chapter 10. This gives great insight, Mark, into the matter of how we are to fellowship in worship with believers and not to be doing it on an individual basis as a pattern. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25. It says, "...and let us consider how to stimulate one, one another to love and good deeds not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near, the day of Christ's coming, the day of the Lord coming back for His own. I believe that that phrase there, forsaking not our own assembling together as is the habit of some, is very instructive in this regard. I believe that it is the pattern of the New Testament and it is the explicit teaching here that we are not to be so individualized in our worship, but we are to assemble together. How could we possibly live out the 45 one-anothers of the New Testament unless we were living them out in the crucible of our lives together? Now, that doesn't mean that we don't interact with some believers through the week, in a in a situation, whether it's your spouse or your own family or fellow believers in the marketplace or in your job. But when we're talking about the worship expression of a local church, this text says we're not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. And it even says, as is the habit of some. Even in the first century, there were people who apparently had this uh, a very individualized worship expression. And this text says we're not to do that. This is a command. That we're to be worshiping together and encouraging one another. You can't encourage another believer if you're out all by yourself. The analogy of fire burning very brightly in a set of logs is a good analogy because when you take one of those logs and you remove it from the fire and you remove it from the other logs, what happens to that particular log? The fire quickly goes out. If someone believes that they are better off for worshiping on an individualized basis, then I think that person has some uh, selfishness involved. And that what better idea than to encourage one another, exhort one another, to live out the one another's in the context of fellow believers. That's the most selfless thing a person could do. It's very selfish to say, I don't need other Christians. I'm going to do my own thing somewhere else. It's a very, very selfish mindset. And that's obviously what the writer to Hebrews had in mind here. All right? Okay, our time is gone. It's 8 o'clock. We want to uh, close our time in prayer. Thank you for coming tonight. And thank you for, again, all of the blessing that my own family received as a result of the hard work and servants and singers, and for your children as well. Thank you for coming. We want to thank Mark and Kay Whitlock again and all of those who were involved. And thank you for your faithfulness to the Bible Church of Little Rock. Let's stand together for a final prayer.